Welcome back, everybody. I'm your host, Greg McEwen, and this is part two of my conversation with Yale professor Samuel Wilkinson, who wrote the rather bold book, Purpose, What Evolution and Human Nature Imply About the Meaning of Our Existence. He's wrestling with the secrets of the universe, but doing it in a way that can help us find increased meaning in our lives. By the end of this part of the interview, you will better understand the science that supports the bold idea that a part of us is designed for greater altruism and service. Not that we are entirely designed to pursue our self-interest, the survival of the fittest, to use that term. And in a world that is celebrating in so many ways, looking after yourself, independent, a sort of radical independence, where freedom means not feeling responsible to other people or to family. This interview is a breath of fresh air. Let's get to it. It seems like a natural segue, as you call it, about this second idea that does evolution require it to be true that humans and everything else are just self-interested, right? Just purely the survival of the fittest. And so, you know, this is, uh, you know, you have a whole chapter in, in the book specifically about this. I wonder if you can kind of outline what you've been able to gather to to address this uh, in, in in your research and writing, yeah. I, thanks for thanks for shifting that and clarifying this this part of the the conversation. I think this was one of the things that was so initially off putting about the theory of evolution is what it implied about human nature and this notion of survival of the fittest, only the the fit, the selfish, the hypersexual survive, and so forth. Mm. What it boils down to is a an issue that. In my mind, well, let me back up just a little bit and say an empirical observation of human nature and nature from from animals suggests it's it's not that way. There are plenty of examples from animals, plenty of examples from humans where behavior is altruistic, and that that was initially very puzzling to you know biologists those you know, those studying nature from a, a, a lens of evolution. Can I just interrupt you yeah. for a second? I don't want to miss this point. I had read that Darwin had said himself that altruism was the primary obstacle in accepting his theory of revolution, like of evolution, that, that he himself had identified that. Is that, is that right? Well, in the origin of species, he brings up this example. He brings an example of honeybees. And the way that honeybees work in their society is you have a hive of honeybees and there's one queen, a female queen. There's about two or 300 male drones and there are about 50 or 60,000 female worker bees, all of whom are incapable of reproduction. And so that was a puzzle to him. How would nature, if, if reproduction is so important, 
how would nature have come up with this quirky society where these worker honeybees toil their entire life for the benefit of the hive. Mm. And the, the resolution to this is the understanding that, well, the queen is the sister to all these worker honeybees. And so, you know, there's this sense that genetics was not really understood or, or the, the structure of a gene was not understood when Darnold was writing. But there was this understanding that traits were passed on and traits were shared among siblings and so forth. And so the trait of altruism, even though it didn't benefit directly the direct lineage of the worker honeybee because they were infertile, it, it you know, their, their nieces and nephews through the offspring of, of the queen, they would go on and survive and, and, and therefore reproduce. And so he got at this issue, which biologists refer to as the levels of selection. So this concept of natural selection where you know you have a biological entity that reproduces and it passes on traits to offspring. What is the level at which nature or natural selection works? Is it a, a, a gene? Uh, is it a cell? Is it is it a whole organism uh, like in in human in our example a, a person, or is it a maybe a family or even further a group? So there are all these kind of different levels on which at least theoretically natural selection might work. And when you think about behavioral traits, there's a bit of an opposition. If you have an, a single organism and a group of organisms, those behavioral traits that natural selection operating on different levels might produce are in somewhat of a, opposition, right? Yes. An, an individual may thrive within a group if he is selfish, but a group composed of purely selfish individuals is going right. to deteriorate and not do very well compared <laughs> to a group that is cohesive and cooperative and, and, and so on and so forth. So there, there are two famous biologists, uh, Edward Wilson, who recently passed away, and David Sloan Wilson, they summed it up this way. They said, selfish individuals outcompete altruistic individuals, but altruistic groups outcompete selfish groups. And mm. everything else is commentary. Mm. And, and that kind of yes. illustrates how, uh, and it's not just selfishness and altruism, but all sorts of behavioral traits, when you look at different levels of selection, are, are somewhat pitted against each other. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that phrase is so, is so interesting. I mean, it's, it's trying to make the math, like the, the mathematics changes when you're trying to think about what helps a, a system of people, a community of people, a family of people, succeed together versus what strategies would help an individual to be able to make the most progress on their own and so so you're saying as soon as as soon as there's a <laughs> as soon as there's a hive mind right as soon as there's a collective to be considered and that you're trying to optimize with more than one person in mind suddenly altruism will be extremely advantageous over a group that's just thinking for themselves. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a brilliantly clear and simple way of pushing that. Yeah, and, and, and Darwin himself noted that, not in The Origin of Species, but I think it was, was it 1871, uh, he wrote a, a subsequent book where he tried to apply evolutionary theory to humans and human behavior, and I think hit, hit many points correctly. Let me just make a bit of an academic caveat because, so, so 
I've outlined kind of two principles. One is this individual level selection and another is group selection. Now, group selection as a concept is, is controversial among biologists and, and those who study evolution. There's debate as, as to you know, how much it happened and whether it really influenced human nature. What is not controversial is something called kin selection, which there are a lot of nuances that I'm glossing over here, but you can think about it as you know, group selection where the group is composed of, uh, of people who are close related, family. There's a lot of nuances to that, but one of the key messages that I tried to make in my argument is that the very best, the, the very best in human nature, the deepest forms of altruism, of love, of cooperation, and so forth, their origins in the flesh are found in the way that evolution shaped our family relationships. Hmm. Can, you, can you unpack that for us? Well, it, it goes back to what we talked about, human offspring being extraordinarily premature when they are born. Hmm. This, by necessity, parents had to develop a deep concern and care and sense of altruism for their children. If they didn't, that wouldn't be a very good long-term evolutionary strategy. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the thinking that, that I'm trying to bring home is that, again, the, the deepest forms of, our, of altruism and, and cooperation and love and so forth have their origins in the flesh in this in kin selection, the way that evolution shaped family really relationships. And therefore, when human beings today find themselves in a context in which their family relationships are are doing well, are are enriched, the better angels of their nature will tend to predominate. There's a lot of sociological literature that actually supports that. So be, because we're you know we're just thinking um, the origin of the the, the most pro-social aspects of human nature have their root in the way that evolution shaped human family relationships. When our family relationships are in harmony, that tends to bring out the, the better aspects of our nature. So you're saying that when the family, the team, the, 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 the group of humans is operating by overarching rules of altruism, that individuals within that system will tend to rise to those norms. Essentially, yes, and it, and it's especially true for men, and this is one of the one of the kind of messages I try to take away. When men are involved in the rear of the children, which is a, you know, there's a less of a biological tie between men and their children and women and the children. Mm-hmm. I think that's somewhat self-explanatory. We're happy to go into the details of that. When men are engaged in the rear of their children, they are less likely to commit crimes. They're less likely to be involved in problematic substance use. There's all sorts of ways in which their kind of evolutionary role as a father tends to come out more. This episode is sponsored by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. (coughs) Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. So whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. 
from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system whenever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. So sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify magic, which is your AI-powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments, and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify, because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash greg. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I I literally was just was just reading something about this that, that really stopped me in my in my tracks, and it was this idea. Let me see if I can find it here. Though the culture may tell us otherwise, we are not designed for self actualized pleasure seeking autonomy. We are deeply relational beings designed not for independence but for radical dependence and connection. These things are not just the means to an end. Familial love and belonging are the end. I, I, I really thought that was fascinating. They go on in their article to identify specific research uh, that supports this, that you know, fi- finding sociological findings for people that aren't, let's say, predisposed to come to these conclusions uh, that found that when in inner city areas, when mothers, well, when, when young women became mothers, they would describe that having this child filled their life with meaning and purpose and that the effect was even larger when men were, you know, have children and take responsibility for those children, that it it just fills their life with meaning. So instead of this idea of like, no, just be an atomized, you know, person free to roam and do whatever you want, that that will get you to the highest need, Abraham Maslow's, you know, self-actualization, you will have arrived, that I think is promulgated in all sorts of ways in social media and just in, in just common parlance today is just wrong. You know, I, anyway, I don't want to go too far down that path, but your your your, your reactions to any of that. Well, I, I agree with it. And the quote about the importance of relationships, that is certainly... Over and over again, we're hearing Robert Waldinger published a book recently called The Good Life in which he detailed the results of this, essentially the longest running study of, of adult behavior and development. 
and comes to the conclusion that you know relationships are what, just foundation. What, hold on, what study is that? Is that the Harvard Longevity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, okay. the Harvard Adult Development Study started in 1930s, maybe late 30s, and it, it eventually merged with another study and looked at some 700 men over their lifetime, and I think is now studying their their descendants. But Amazing. several of the key people involved in that study have concluded that look, you know, the fundamental factor that determines well-being and happiness and, and so forth is how capable are these people of forming and maintaining warm and healthy relationships. You know, science didn't always understand this in psychology around the, you say the early 1900s, there was a sense that, you know, relationships were just a means to an end. Freud wrote a little bit about this, you know, the, the infant loved the mother because she gave the infant milk the, the wife, uh, the husband loved the wife because she gave him sex. And so, you know, it's, it's all transactional. Correct. Correct. And it's much deeper than that. And, and I think one of the professional ancestors that I most look up to is this man named John Bowlby, a psychiatrist who developed what's called attachment theory and how important <laughs> the, you know, the mother infant relationship was and how that laid the groundwork for the development of, of relationships for the rest of, of a person's life and, and how critical they were to uh, to really mental health and, and well-being. Well, and, and, and if, if that wasn't the case, I mean, I don't know, there's a sort of uh, chicken before the egg in what I'm about to observe, but it's like, well, why is a lack of attachment, why is detachment so damaging? Why when children really believe, and maybe because it was true, but when they really believe that their children, their parents did not value them, I mean, in, in fundamental ways, right? That they were abandoned by their parents. Or uh, why does it cause so much pain? Why, if, we, if it's not true that the attachment itself is extremely powerful for everybody involved, why would the absence of it cause such damage? You can keep saying that it has no effect, but, uh, but you know, you just watch the natural, sort of natural law at play uh, when you when you don't invest in this way, yeah, yeah, more. What 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 else did you find as you looked at this altruism side of the equation? Well, that it's deep, and again, going back to this concept of, I think the way to bring it out in people, and in the best way is to to help people as much as possible, to form families, and to nurture good relationship with their good relationships with their families there is a, a wealth of sociological data to suggest that you know family relationships are just critical to to well-being uh, I, I think I think you I, I don't think I'm having to convince you of that yeah um, you know doing so is it's easier said than done but I think like you you said our culture maybe doesn't understand this and and so you know as we talked, you know, what, what are some of the takeaways yeah. that, that I can offer is there's really good evidence that having a good marriage, good family life is going to have more significance and more bearing on your happiness and well-being than a, 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 your dream job. Not that work isn't important. It certainly is. But there's just, you know, very strong empirical evidence that a, a good marriage, a good family life can be usually is the most important factor in you know someone's just overall psychological well-being i was just rereading again and, and in more in depth this time you know i mentioned before uh, abraham 
Maslow's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which like anyone who has taken any beginner course in psychology or none at all has seen the pyramid, right? Has seen this these five uh, ascending uh, needs that he spent his whole life trying to understand and for the sake of human flourishing, right? So the motive isn't isn't the problem is he's trying to he's trying to make sense of how to help people thrive. But what's interesting and a bit unfortunate is that he wrote a book right before he passed away in which he changed the hierarchy. And so instead of self-actualization being at the top, meaning like personal growth, the autonomy to pursue what it is that you think uh, you should do, uh, he, he changed it and he, he put self-transcendence at the top of the hierarchy, uh, that, th- that he felt that this was more accurate in describing what really happens and, and, and that, you know, what did he mean by self-transcendence? I mean, it's a few different things, but it, it, it literally includes what we're describing here, altruism. It certainly included a sense of unity, connection, and belonging with other people, and he felt it required quite a highly developed person to be capable of doing it. I mean, I just think that's an illustration of what we're describing here. I mean, it's just this promulgation of one theory, and it's just broadened out into the whole world, and 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 I think even has become almost radicalized now uh, as, you know, that is how you pursue happiness. And the, the data just consistently tells a different story. So there's data yeah. with one narrative, but another narrative that seems to be uh, so dominant now, um, you know, I- I- in the West. But um, were you familiar with that with with Maslow? Yeah, and, and he's not the only one who has helped to contribute to this very individualistic culture, yeah, which I think is is still fairly dominant in in the West. Certainly, there is something to be said, and you know, every marriage has to negotiate how to differentiate individual from group goals and so forth, and a family has to do that. Certainly, there's something to be said for individual pursuits and and meaning. Yes, but when our lives are, when we have no deep meaningful relationships. Our lives are often devoid of meaning. You know, something you said a, a few minutes ago about how when people become parents, they have this deep sense of meaning. I think in a very real way, that is relating to our evolution, right? And, and, and that's a, 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 a function of how we were created. So you know, if, if, if God really created us with a sense of wanting for us to to multiply, to have joy in our posterity, it's no wonder that a process such as evolution was used. Does that make sense? Yeah, I want you to unpack it a little more because I think that this goes to sort of the direct core of what you're writing about, but also it is like, like the conclusion too, because you're trying to bring in a way back together these things that have been represented as completely at odds with each other for the last 150 years. So this is this is the profound enterprise that you're on, is to try to say, is there not a way to merge two sets of truths that are often just at the beginning just presumed to be at odds with each other? Well, certainly when you ask people, what is it that makes your life meaningful? And these are the sorts of surveys that the Pew Foundation does really well. Um, there's one from, I think, 2018. Pew asked something like 5,000 Americans what is it that gives your life purpose and meaning? 
and this was an open-ended question. And then they, you know, then had to clean up the results and tally them and categorize them and so forth. Interesting. And the number one, the number one response is family and children. I, th- I think that was something like seventy percent. The second most common was work, and that was about half, hmm. right? Half, you know, thirty-five percent uh, of people listed that as you know one of the top things. So. You know, I, I, I don't quite understand all the mechanisms of it, but it certainly seems to be related to this, this you know, this deep need that we have for personal relationships and the way in which I think the strongest relationships were created in nature was was through through evolution. So if if you ask a question, you know, what is the meaning of life? And some people will criticize and that's, that's overly broad. It, it can't have an answer. I would disagree and say that at least one such meaning is to form deep and personal relationships. And, you know, the relationships that are most relevant in evolution are the ones with whom we share our genes, and that is our family members. I I do think it is a function of, you know, kind of our psychological architecture and makeup and the way that, that nature has created us. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful note to kind of end on here uh that that we are what you're saying is i think that we are quite literally evolved physically psychologically biologically in such a way that the probability of our happiness and the, the probability that we will find meaning is that we will prioritize these essential relationships in our lives uh, and make trade-offs along the way, sacrifices in order to maintain and uh, nurture and grow them. That seems to be what you've concluded from this uh, important work purpose. That's that's one way to frame it. It's tricky though, because something you said, I, I just wanted to reframe a little bit Please. We don't always understand this, right? One of the things that we're really not good at as human beings is something some psychologists would call affective forecasting or predicting what is going to make us happy. Right. And so we need to remember over and over and over again and tell ourselves, no, there, it's the relationship done. We focus on that. Certainly other things need our attention at times and so forth. But if we starve our relationships by focusing too much on work or hobbies, whatever it is, that is a recipe for misery. And, and, and it's not always top of mind. It's not always intuitive from a psychological perspective, right? When you, when you, this is an exercise that when I conduct honestly, leaves me a little unsettled. Imagine if you had a couple hours you, that, that you ended up with at the end of the day, how would you fill them? Would you catch up on work? Would you write a love letter to your spouse? Would you, you know, do something with, with <laughs> one of your kids? When I'm honest about that, I need to kind of go back and say, hey, you know, what are my priorities here? And I know you might not like that word priorities, right? You, you say there's only one of them. Right? <laughs> so, um, 
but but you know we're psychologically engineered in such a way that we're not great always at, at predicting what is it that is going to make me fulfilled or make me happy so it's tricky okay so so what you're saying is that we're not entirely evolved to to in order to actually maximize even our own happiness or meaning that's what you're saying you're saying that there are forces that play that make that that we that we are well that we are forced to have to think for ourselves it's not just so embedded in us that it will just happen automatically maybe that would be helpful but we're actually designed in such a way that that we have to choose between these things which is a theme of course at the very heart of your your, your of this book that we haven't really touched on at all which is which is the choice that that we are literally designed in such a way that that all these forces exist that allow us to make choices between that that we could say it maybe i think this way that you would agree i think that evolution has left us in a position where we have to make trade-offs and we cannot not make trade-offs that that it is absolutely required we were built somehow to do this did i catch that right or did i get wrong yeah, no, I, I think that's that's a great way to say it. Certainly, we are pulled in different directions. And <laughs> right. there's, there are many secular, non-believing students of human nature and scholars of human nature who have, have observed this. Uh, Edward Wilson, again, the late Harvard biologist, said, you know, no, no wonder that the human spirit is in such constant turmoil because of the different pressures that evolution exerted on us over time that leaves us pulled in different directions. We... I do believe part of that original formulation of evolution is leaving us in a, in a selfish state. We definitely have a deep capacity for selfish. It's, a, yes. it's an unfortunate part of our nature, yes. but we also have a capacity for altruism. And in, in order to make a family work, you kind of have to kill a part of yourself and, and put that away or at least subdue it, right? A marriage doesn't work if the selfish aspects of both parties are, you know, coming to the forefront, you know, frequently. You know, Marriage can be extraordinarily fulfilling, but it can go it can go wrong. You know, and 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 in some ways, each person that enters into a, a a partnership like that has to turn off a part of their nature, or suppress it, or you know continually address on uh, address those parts of his or her nature that are going to get in the way of a flourishing partnership. So it's it's a crucible, right? Life is a, is a test. It's a crucible and. We do have to make choices as to which part of our nature we are listening to, right? It, it wouldn't be a test if we weren't pulled in one direction or another. I love the idea that we're not just being pulled in different directions, like only by, you can analyze that just for, from a moral point of view, a religious point of view, and you say, okay, well, there's good and there's evil. And, and you're not saying that that is inherently not true, but you're adding to that. But yes, but biologically we are also in exactly that way that we that, that we have evolved in such a way that we are that we are pulled in these different directions and and i think that is sort of the very it's like that's the exhausting reality of life like that is ever present so even if you don't think about it as a test we feel it from the moment we wake up oh my goodness should i do i do i check the email do i do i take a moment to really think do i i mean we're constantly pulled and and so is but but i love that idea that you're emphasizing for us that that really that 
that's also a biological evolution so that it really is literally in my body it is literally in the way my mind it has has been configured uh and is as has has developed because i feel that i i feel it everybody listening to this I, everyone I think a lot of people feel it everybody and and i love that that's just that that is within us and so that we have to make make these sacrifices in order to pursue you know the better angels of our nature and that 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 may be biologically true not just morally true is yeah. is a fascinating addition to 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 that understanding samuel wilkinson it has been a real pleasure to have you to be able to go deep and uh i i i love that you've taken the time to be able to put this thinking down into a marvelous book purpose uh, who of us do not need more of that in our lives Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure, Greg. I appreciate it. If you're getting reflective as we come to the end of this year about how to make sure that next year is a life filled with meaning and purpose, I'd invite you to consider joining with somebody else and signing up for the Essentialism Academy. And stay tuned for a series of new announcements about the new content that will be arriving soon there. Well, there we have it. The interview with Samuel Wilkinson. What is something that stood out to you? What is one thing that you can do differently to be able to be grateful for the test that has been provided for us, built quite literally into the DNA of our bodies? This requirement to choose, a requirement to make trade-offs, and ultimately to choose a life of greater meaning and contribution, or a smaller life where we become, as one author put it, one self wide and one self deep. If you found value in today's episode, I'll please write a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us to be able to get the best guests. And for the first person who writes a review of today's episode, you'll receive a free access for one whole year to the Essentialism Academy. Just go to gregmcewan.com forward slash essential for further details, and I'll see you all next time. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's going to push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the Podcast Princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. 
So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.